Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Broadly Underestimated. Following the Codebreaker series, I got a bunch of questions about Elizabeth Friedman, female codebreakers in general, and some of the World War II political circumstances that I'd referred to in the episodes. So when I'm putting together an episode, I inevitably have to make decisions about what to include and what not to. So what is also inevitable is that for the sake of keeping a narrative direct and well-paced, I generally have to omit details that I find fascinating and which listeners may have questions about later. So I could not be more excited to have a little chat about the questions I received, which will hopefully connect more of the dots for you. So to give you an idea of what to expect, there are five questions that I want to address. Four of those questions have relatively quick answers, and the fifth question is a bit of a story in and of itself. So for the first few minutes of the podcast, I'll answer those first four questions, and then we'll dive into the last question, which will take us further down the rabbit hole of spies in Latin America during World War II, and into the story of one woman whose espionage helped keep the Axis afloat. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. The first question I wanted to address was, what type of language training did Elizabeth have? Elizabeth Friedman didn't go into codebreaking with any language training that was specific to her work. The nature of codebreaking is based on patterns and math, so in theory, a codebreaker doesn't have to speak the language that they're breaking codes in. Codebreakers were the ones to identify the patterns in a coded message that would lead them to understand what letters or numbers represented other letters or words on the page. This would essentially lead them to be able to write out a message in the language it was written in. Since German uses the same alphabet as is used in the English language, it was just a matter of writing out the letters or words that the codes dictated and then having the message translated. Codebreaking units worked closely with translators who would be passed the messages as soon as they were broken. Now, with that said, an understanding of the language you're breaking codes in could of course be helpful. Many ciphers were decrypted using cribs, or best guesses, about what a message might contain. Using those best guesses, codebreakers could then use some trial and error to essentially reverse engineer a message. So knowing specific words or phrases in German or Japanese could have been very helpful to codebreakers in that trial and error process of determining whether a message contained a specific word or phrase. Over the years, Elizabeth picked up a fair understanding of German terms, since this was the language that her code-breaking work was focused on. But to my knowledge, she didn't receive extensive formal training in German. All right, question number two. What was William Friedman doing while Elizabeth broke World War I, Mafia, and German spy codes? Now, I wanted to keep the series very focused on Elizabeth because she's awesome, but also because most of the focus between this couple has been on William in the past. But William was doing some pretty amazing things throughout his years working in code breaking. As we discussed in the first episode of the series, William was working alongside Elizabeth during World War I to crack enemy codes. But there is a point at which their paths diverged in a huge way. In May of 1918, William actually joined the army to go to France to apply his code-breaking skills there, and Elizabeth wanted to go with him, but the army refused because she was a woman. 
So let's just point out that the Army refused the overseas services of one of, if not the best codebreaker in the country, simply because she was a woman. Can you hear my eye roll? William returned from France in April of 1919, and by January of 1921, both Elizabeth and William took codebreaking jobs in Washington, D.C. Starting in the 1920s, William was asked to delve into the world of cipher machines to determine the weaknesses, strengths, and holes in their systems so that the U.S. government could both use and exploit them. This work eventually led into his work with Genevieve Grochin that I mentioned in the third episode of the series, where he worked for years to break into the Japanese diplomatic cipher machine. Nearing the end of World War II, William was asked to go overseas again, this time to Germany and England, to analyze German ciphers and machines and to determine whether the Germans ever knew that their Enigma codes had been broken. He concluded that they didn't. Following the war, William worked for the NSA until 1955, when he retired, but he contributed to various special projects and missions afterward. The last question about the Freedmen's was, what ultimately happened to them? So remember that they were a working power couple before that was a thing. They both worked themselves into the ground during the Second World War, and Elizabeth maintained both a career, a household, and her two children because she was a freaking boss. They both retired within 10 years of the war ending. Shortly afterward, they moved to a new home in Washington, D.C. that was near two libraries, where they would spend time doing research for a book that they would write together. The purpose of the book was to debunk Mrs. Gallup's Shakespeare theory that they had both worked on at the beginning of their careers in code-breaking. William passed away in 1969, and Elizabeth thankfully donated her papers and conducted interviews to preserve her history before passing away in 1980. These were two full, fascinating lives. Another question I wanted to touch on relates to diversity in codebreaking. Now, the massive recruitment of young female codebreakers during World War II that I talked about in the third episode of the series was focused on white women. It's important to acknowledge that when we talk about feminism and progress, what we're often talking about is progress for white women. Now, of course, any steps forward are positive, but it's important to recognize that some of those forward steps were and are less accessible to women of color. In order to keep the very long third episode of the series focused on German and Japanese codes, I didn't speak much about commercial codes, but I'm excited to share a bit about them with you now. So as I described in the series, commercial codes were monitored to make sure that American companies and banks weren't doing business with the enemy. Specifically, they wanted to find out if any companies had dealings with Hitler or Japanese companies. A co-ed African-American code-breaking unit was actually responsible for cracking these commercial communications. During this period, the army was still segregated, so the code-breaking operation was also segregated. These codebreakers were often highly educated and worked diligently to not only decrypt those commercial codes, but to sift through non-governmental Spanish, French, Italian, Portuguese, German, and English plain text messages. So they had an overwhelming amount of work to do. To tackle such an enormous workload, the labor was allocated among three sections, two of which were led by women. The largest section was led by Annie Briggs, who started out as a secretary, then had risen to lead the team that identified codes, decoded messages, and provided clerical support. The language unit was led by Ethel Just, who translated the messages once they'd been decoded. 
And this is what this amazing unit was up to when analyzing commercial codes during this period. And this concludes the first section of the episode. I hope that answering these questions has provided a bit more context for you and filled in some of the gaps. Now, let's jump into the aspect of the series that I got the most questions about. And that question is, what were the dynamics in Latin America during World War II? Now, that is a big question, but I found that the political dynamics in Latin America leading up to, during, and after World War II are fascinating, but not so widely known. So I'm really excited to dig into this a bit, and also to talk about how one female German spy influenced the trajectory of the war. So Latin America was coveted ground for both the Allies and the Axis powers. It was full of political and economic opportunity and produced critically needed wartime resources like oil and rubber. To sum up the situation in Latin America leading up to and during the war, it was really a constant tug of war between the Axis and the Allies to win over Latin America both politically and economically. So to provide more context to all of this, let's set the scene by establishing that the quote main players in the Second World War already had economic, social, and immigrant ties to countries in South America, Central America, and Mexico long before the war began. Jewish communities fleeing the Spanish Inquisition and banishment from Spain started coming to the New World as far back as the 15th century. While these early colonies were Spanish settlements, Jewish immigrants were generally treated less badly in the New World than they were back in Spain. As Latin American countries began to free themselves from the grasp of Portugal and Spain by the early 19th century, the Inquisition was no longer enforced, and Jewish immigrants were officially accepted across their borders. Many Japanese immigrants arrived in South America in the early 20th century via labor contracts to work on rubber camps in the Amazon or on cotton plantations. Japanese communities sprouted up with businesses and schools, and by 1940, Japanese immigrant entrepreneurs had developed a strong foothold in industries like the exportation of cotton, shirt-making and laundry, watch and clock shops, bakeries, and the barber trade. German agricultural settlements began popping up in South America starting in the mid-19th century. I think a common misperception is that German immigration in South America began specifically when Nazis fled Europe after the war. But the fact of the matter was that German immigrant communities dotted South American countries for almost a century before that. Over time, more and more German communities, businesses, and schools became part of the landscape. Motivated by the economic and military collapse of Germany after World War I ended, a new wave of German immigrants went to South America looking for a new life and new opportunities. Ex-German military pilots were especially drawn to the region because the Treaty of Versailles forbade Germany from maintaining a standing army, so many military aviators lost their livelihoods when World War I ended. This caused some aviators to be drawn to the prospect of developing commercial aviation enterprises in South America. Leading up to the start of World War II, German aviators had a strong foothold on the skies of South America. The cultivation of resources from Latin America was a main focus of both the Axis and the Allies. Through their immigrant population and long-standing economic agreements, Germany had strong ties to South American countries like Argentina and Chile. 
Germany flirted with South American leaders in hopes that they might be granted access to critical materials like rubber and oil, while also hoping to engender support for the spread of fascism and, perhaps, even motivate the establishment of fascist governments in the region. Once war seemed probable, the Allies began their own intense resources race in Latin America, trying to secure access to that valuable rubber and oil and attempting to push German and Japanese businesses out wherever possible. Given the significant immigration, political, and economic ties, there were varying loyalties throughout Latin America during World War II. Much of Central America declared war on Japan and or Germany just days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, demonstrating their loyalty to the Allies. Brazil declared war on Germany and Italy in 1942 and is the only South American country that sent troops overseas to fight with the Allies. However, South America and Mexican loyalties were complex. Countries like Argentina and Chile had those long-standing ties to Germany and Italy through economics, immigration, and military training partnerships. Peru and other South American countries had similar economic and immigration ties to Japan. As a result, many countries tried to remain neutral, at least officially, in order to preserve economic and political relationships simultaneously with both the Axis and the Allies, until the tides of the war pushed them in one direction or the other. In the meantime, the U.S. launched a full-fledged propaganda machine throughout Latin America, sending famous people like Bing Crosby, Rita Hayworth, Aaron Copeland, Errol Flynn, and Orson Welles as Goodwill ambassadors. They even sent Walt Disney, who went on a Goodwill tour, which resulted in a very successful film, in which Donald Duck and other cartoon characters explored the beauty of Latin America. The movie was released first in Latin America and was incredibly successful there. The American PR machine was making strides. Now, Mexico insisted on remaining neutral during the early period of the war, which combined with geographic proximity to the United States and other factors, made the territory rife with espionage. Apart from Operation Bolivar, which was the radio transmission spying that Elizabeth Friedman cracked into, there was an entire underworld of espionage humming below the surface in Latin America, especially in Mexico. At this point, the United States was dreadfully behind the rest of the main players in the war in terms of spying power. They started the war at a significant disadvantage because spies from the Axis powers had already been operating in Mexico for years. The main focus of German spies in Mexico was to observe what kinds of wartime materials Mexico could provide to the Axis and what supplies they were providing to the United States. A German spy ring operating in Mexico included strategically placed spies and informants in various sectors. For example, one spy worked at a shipping company and could therefore provide details on the comings and goings of warships, oil tankers, and merchant ships off the Gulf Coast. Another spy posed as an entrepreneur, offering to build ships for the Mexican government. Through these business conversations, the spy was able to obtain photos and designs of U.S. and British ships. But perhaps the most strategically and impressively placed German spy in Mexico was Hilda Kruger. Kruger was a German actress and mistress of Joseph Goebbels, the chief propagandist of the Nazi party. Goebbels' wife eventually made her disapproval of the affair known, and he paved the way for Kruger to try her luck as an actress in Hollywood. Her Hollywood career did not take off, and she relocated to Mexico in order to serve the Reich by infiltrating the upper echelons of Mexican political society. 
While becoming a rising star in Mexican film, she formed attachments to various cabinet ministers, including Miguel Aleman, the Secretary of the Interior who would eventually become the President of Mexico. By becoming intimately involved with these men, Kruger was able to gather information about government leanings and resources. Her main focus was to secure resources like mercury and oil, substances that would feed the German war machine. Kruger was hidden in plain sight, living publicly, appearing on the big screen, but operating in the shadows. German spies had access to some pretty cool James Bond-like stuff. In order to relay the information they gathered to German headquarters without being detected, they utilized tools like secret inks and microdots. Now, let's take a second to talk about these microdots. They were the size of the dot of an eye and could stick to anything, a postcard, your skin, a piece of jewelry. But these microdots were tiny pieces of film on which spies could record reams and bookfuls of information without being detected. With this kind of technology and the sophisticated radio transmission networks they had throughout Latin America, German spies worked quietly in the shadows to build a web of information about loyalties, resources, and allied strengths and weaknesses. But the situation suddenly shifted in Mexico when, in May of 1942, a German U-boat sank a Mexican tanker, bringing oil to the United States. The tanker had displayed the appropriate signals of neutrality and was sailing with its lights on. So whether the strike was an error or an intentional attempt to destroy oil to be used by the United States, it and subsequent attacks on Mexican ships shortly afterward pushed Mexico to declare war on Germany. The Mexican government supported their declaration of war by sending 300 volunteers to fight against the Axis alongside the U.S. military. Formerly known as the 201st Fighter Squadron, the men were nicknamed the Aztec Eagles. The men were first sent to San Antonio, Texas, where their initial training was performed by the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, more commonly known as WASP. These female pilots flew for the U.S. Army throughout the war. Don't worry, we'll come back to them in a minute. After this initial training, the pilots completed specialized training in bombing aircraft, which they ultimately used in dive bomb missions against the Japanese in the Philippines. Okay, so just indulge me for a second as I return to the topic of the Women's Air Force Service pilots to take a moment to describe how awesome these women were. As part of the World War II push to diminish the labor shortage left by the men fighting overseas, the U.S. Air Force recruited women into a civilian program to do the flying within the United States. They served on more than 120 bases throughout the country, performing a variety of missions. They ferried new planes from aviation factories to army bases, broke in new planes, did maintenance checks, and did live ammunition training. In short, they were awesome, and I just couldn't resist sharing a bit more about these incredible ladies. Now, back to the task at hand. Mexico and Brazil were the only Latin American countries to actively fight against the Axis during the war. Upon their return home to Mexico after the war ended, the 201st Squadron was publicly celebrated. The end of the war left much of the globe reeling. Now, as the world tried to establish order after the chaos, there was a massive shuffling of displaced people to different countries throughout the world, and many would go to South America, including fleeing Nazis and collaborators. The Catholic Church had developed an entire machine to relocate nearly a million displaced people during and just after the war. Of those who were relocated, tens of thousands could have been Nazis or collaborators. 
Argentina welcomed more Nazis, fascists, and collaborators than any other South American country for various reasons, but two main reasons were that President Perón supported their politics and he was also very keen to bring in as many German or other refugee technicians as possible in order to advance industrialization of the country. Some German spies in Latin America were charged with espionage, but Hilda Kruger eluded charges for the rest of her life. She married a series of highly wealthy and influential men, continued to act and to write, and lived a comfortable life. Much like Hilda Kruger's work as a spy, the goings-on in Latin America during the Second World War were less pronounced than the actions of the Allied and Axis powers, but they were incredibly influential. And their more behind-the-scenes power helped to determine the outcome of the war. I hope this jump into the dynamics of Latin America helped to deepen your understanding of how Elizabeth Friedman and her work decoding Nazi spying messages in South America fit into the crazy web of politics and espionage in the Second World War. There are so many dots in history, but when you dive in just a little bit, you can start to see how the dots connect. And now, it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. An amazing book that I read about political, economic, and social dynamics in Latin America leading up to, during, and after World War II is called The Tango War by Mary Jo McConaughey. McConaughey is a journalist who has lived and worked around the globe, and I was floored by her ability to tell the story of such a large geographic area in such a succinct, interconnected way. Each chapter of the book focuses on a different aspect of how World War II was experienced in Latin American countries, from the race between the Axis and allies for resources, propaganda, discrimination, kidnapping, spies, and more. So if you're curious to develop a general knowledge of World War II in this geographic region in one incredibly well-written and fast-paced book, I highly recommend The Tango War. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.